The Gospel lesson is written in the 28th chapter of Matthew, beginning at the 16th verse. Please stand for the reading of the Gospel. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. In May of 2014, I traveled with 32 members and friends of Faith Lutheran in the footsteps of Paul through Greece and Turkey. I was the travel host for this tour, and what a rich experience we shared. In this photo, we're in the northern Greek town of Philippi, or as the Greeks say, Philippi. But that sounds weird to American New Year's, so I'll just say Philippi. Philippi is the place where Paul first shared the gospel of Jesus Christ in Europe. It was here that he first baptized a European. Do you remember that person's name? Lydia. Very good. You heard it in the first lesson. Uh, Paul and his traveling companions... Luke, Silas, and Timothy go just outside Philippi where they come upon a group of women who are praying in the manner of the Jews alongside a river. Paul and his companions sit down and speak to the women there, sharing the good news of Christ's salvation and gift of eternal life. Their message is an answer to the prayers of these women. Lydia hears the gospel of Christ. The scripture tells us that the Lord opens Lydia's heart so that she believes, and she believes with her whole heart. She and her whole household are then baptized by Paul. Today, this area along the river is still lovely. Uh, The river's to the left in this photo, and now an area of stone seating and a new chapel are found there. It is not at all built up or touristy. Those of us who were traveling in the footsteps of Paul stood in this place. We read the passage from Acts 16 describing the baptism of Lydia. And it was easy to imagine Paul baptizing her here. Today we're going to examine the sacrament of holy baptism. We'll discuss what the Bible says about baptism and what the church has historically taught about it. We'll also address some of the common questions people ask about this sacrament. So that's three things, the scripture, the history, and the questions. When someone is baptized, we say the words, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We do that because That's what Jesus instructs to be said. And you heard that instruction in the gospel lesson. Holy baptism is a sacrament. In the Lutheran church, 
a sacrament, it's a holy act commanded by Jesus. And it involves the word of God and a physical element. In the case of baptism, that's, of course, water. What makes this act holy is not the person who does it. God's presence and grace bring the holiness. In the words of Luther, therefore, although it's performed by human hands, it is nevertheless truly God's own work. Baptism's one of the means by which God showers his grace, his unearned love on us. He also does this in his holy word and in holy communion. We do not earn or choose God's grace. The Lord gives it. God does all the work, and to him alone goes all the glory. And that's just the way it should be. Let's go to the New Testament scriptures on baptism. The New Testament is, of course, originally written in what language? Greek. Very good. The Greek word used for baptism is I'm waiting for the screen. There you go, baptizo. Uh, And uh, that's uh, the bottom word here. The word implies immersion in water. Baptizo is derived from bapto, the top word, which is a dip in liquid. Now, these two words, while related, express a difference in action. This difference is illustrated in an example from the ancient Greek poet and physician Nicander, who uses both of these words in a recipe for making pickles, which you didn't know you'd be discussing in worship this morning. Nicander instructs that the cucumber should be dipped, bopto, first in boiling water. This is a brief immersion and only has a skin-deep effect on the vegetable. Then next comes baptizo in a vinegar solution. This is a long submersion that produces a complete and permanent change throughout the vegetable. So bapto produces a wet cucumber. Baptizo makes for something different, a real pickle through and through. When Paul uses the word baptizo, In talking about Christian baptism, he's clearly talking about a thorough and complete inward change. The baptism Paul describes then is not just an outward physical wetting of the skin. It's not a bapto kind of immersion in water. Instead, he speaks of a baptizo experience. That is a spiritual conversion of the entire person. The Christian who's baptized in Christ is a new, completely changed creature. In Romans 6, 4, Paul calls this walking in newness of life. Baptism is the visual outward act, and the real change is within. That new self is given the gift of faith in Christ, and through that faith, salvation from sin. Paul discloses or discusses true baptism as an inward change. The inward change is the result of faith. The gift of faith is freely given by God alone. And this is what saves the believer. Scripture doesn't waste time talking about the details of the water 
used in baptism. There's no description in the Bible about the amount of water or the mode of application. What's important is the change in the heart of the believer. It's ironic then that in recent centuries there's been controversy on the correct use of water in baptism and the age qualification. So let's talk a bit about the history of baptism from Paul's time to the current age. The earliest accounts of Christian baptism are in the New Testament scriptures. We really don't get specifics on how the water's applied and how much is used. Uh, Acts 8.10 calls out that both men and women are baptized. This makes clear that adults are the subjects. But in other passages, whole families and households are baptized. Remember Lydia, she and her entire household, undoubtedly people of all ages, are baptized together. That's in Acts 16.15. You can also read about the baptism of entire households in Acts 16.33, Acts 18.8, and 1 Corinthians 1.16. So this is obviously a reasonably common occurrence. One of the earliest Christian documents outside of Scripture is called the Didache. Uh, this Greek word means teaching. Dating from the second half of the first century, it lists the basic beliefs and practices of the church. Uh, I'm going to quote what uh, the Didache says about baptism. Here it is. Concerning baptism, you should baptize this way. After first explaining all things, baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit in flowing water. But if you have no running water, baptize in other water. And if you cannot do so in cold water, then in warm. If you have very little, pour water three times on the head. In the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Before the baptism, both the baptizer and the candidate for baptism plus any others who can should fast. The candidate should fast for one or two days beforehand. Okay, that's the end of the quote. Uh, this instruction is notably lenient in the kind of water and manner of its application, but baptism in the name of the Trinity is not to be omitted. There seems to be an assumption of adult baptism here in the instruction to fasting, in the first century, most believers were converting to the faith as adults rather than being born into Christian families and growing up with the faith. So it makes sense that there are instructions and details appropriate for adults. By the way, the DDK also makes clear that baptism is to happen before a person receives Holy Communion and at no time has the church practiced anything different. We know that babies born into Christian families in this period were baptized. Polycarp, born in the year 69, was a prominent church leader, and he died as a martyr to his Christian faith. He was a disciple of the Apostle John, and he was baptized as an infant. By the early 200s, an early Christian named Origen, is writing about baptism. This is still very early in Christian history. The faith 
is still illegal in the Roman Empire, a faith punishable by death. Origen indicates that the baptism of infants was common and had a basis in apostolic practice. In other words, the apostles did it. He says, the church received from the apostles the tradition of giving baptism even to infants. The scriptural testimony I referenced in 1 Corinthians and Acts regarding the baptism of entire households supports this assertion of infant baptism in apostolic times. Now, as the Christian faith spreads, more and more individuals are being born into Christian families rather than only coming to faith as adults. And infant baptism, alongside adult baptism, is customary throughout the church in all areas of the world. Then, in the 1500s comes the Reformation. Martin Luther confirms that the practice of baptism and the belief about holy baptism has not changed. But after Luther, radical reformers toss out what the church has always taught about baptism and on many other subjects. In the 1500s, the radicals of the Reformation era, the Anabaptists, challenged the teaching on baptism that's been part of the Christian church since the beginning. The Anabaptists believe baptism should only be performed on those who already believe in Jesus Christ. They decide that no one is to be baptized until the age of reason which is usually understood to be around 12 to 13 years of age. They teach that the baptism of infants is invalid, and they re-baptize those who had been previously baptized as infants. The Anabaptists also teach that baptism must include complete immersion, going completely under the water. For Lutherans and other traditional Christians who continue to practice infant baptism alongside adult baptism, pouring water on the head is viewed as sufficient. It should be noted that those practicing infant baptism have never practiced it exclusively. Throughout history, the Christian church has baptized infants and has also baptized penitent and professing adults who've come to faith later in life without prior baptism. Baptism's God's idea, and God is present in this act. Baptism is a means of God's grace, instituted by God, and through it he provides faith, and as a result, forgiveness, life, and salvation. The Apostle Paul makes clear in the book of Romans that no efforts or works on our part count towards our salvation. Nothing we do can earn our salvation. God's grace alone provides this through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, let's look now at some common questions regarding baptism. Here's the first. Why baptize infants since they're too young to have faith and cannot choose to be baptized. First, let's make an important point. Babies need God's forgiveness too. Psalm 51.5 states, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time 
my mother conceived me. Some folks have trouble with the idea that tiny ones have a sinful nature. They look so sweet and innocent. But have you been around a two-year-old lately? What's their favorite word? No. (laughs) Selfishness pretty much describes their outlook. We are indeed all born sinners. Okay, on to the question. Many reject infant baptism on the belief that infants are incapable of faith. Uh, The argument is that a helpless, tiny child, incapable of reason, cannot work faith in itself. This is most certainly true. It is also true that a helpless, sinful adult cannot, by power of reason, work faith in himself. This is all about God's work. The great gift of faith is always given to helpless sinners. It is never a decision that is reasoned out no matter the age of the sinner. The helpless sinners are the ones with hearts ready for conversion. A helpless infant is not innocent, but a sinner too, and equally in need of this great gift. Adults are conscious of the gift. On the other hand, those whose mental faculties are impaired or underdeveloped, whatever their age, are loved by God and benefit from his grace as well. God's great gift is not dependent on human reason, human maturity, human choice, or human power. The power is all God's. The Lord is at the center of everything that happens in baptism. Insistence on the power of human reason or choice has no role here. When we look at baptism theologically and biblically, we see that it is the business of God and God gives his blessings in it. When a tiny child is baptized, the parents stand and witness this act, promising to raise that child in Christian faith. As that child grows, he or she must still cling to that faith and not turn away from it. So the parents of the child then have a big responsibility to bring that child up, instructing him or her to grow in Christian faith, to aid in this. Here's two more questions. What's the proper way to administer water in baptism? Why do Lutherans not immerse the person being baptized? While we usually use a small amount of water, we have no problem with greater amounts being used too. God does not prescribe this act with a certain set of conditions as if it were only affected, effective in certain carefully staged circumstances. Those restrictions on water are human constraints of tradition and opinion. They do not express the will of God as revealed in scripture. Let me tell you a story. Back in 2012, I hosted a tour of Israel for members and friends of Faith Lutheran. Among the many wonderful places we visited was the 150-mile-long Jordan River. 
There's a location along the Jordan that has been developed for tourists to have the experience of being in the water. It's not like anyone can say for sure that this exact spot was associated with any scripture, but it's as good a place as any to think about baptism. So many people do come here to be baptized. Our group had a wonderful afternoon. Uh, You may recognize some of these people. I just waited, but others went for a nice swim out in the river. You'll notice we're all wearing these long white shirts over our suits. It's a measure in place at this location to keep people respectful of the importance of baptism and the people who were being baptized on this day. You can imagine if there weren't some sort of modesty rules that there'd be yellow polka dot bikinis and who knows what else going on. Now here's the important point. There were 34 travelers in our group. None of us were baptized in the Jordan on that day. We had all been baptized before and we believe that one baptism is good for life. Baptism is not our work, but God's work. God does all the giving, and we reap all the benefits. Faith, and through it, forgiveness, salvation, new life, joy, and gladness. Let's pray. Gracious God, we turn to you in prayer, trusting that you hear us as we pray, acknowledging that you are the Almighty and we are but sinners. Thank you for the blessings of baptism. We pray that each day as we wake, we would give thanks to you for the faith you have given us and how you have worked in our lives, bringing us to new life in you through the word and the water of our baptism. In the name of Jesus, amen.